Hello and welcome to Unseen Law, a podcast focusing on the legal factors that perpetuate inequality. My name's Miranda Daniel and I'm a third year law LLB student at the University of Bristol. I decided to start this podcast because I find law a totally fascinating subject to study. However, it has taken me a bit of a while to really enjoy my subject. I found that in my first and second years of university, law was presented to us as extremely factual and it wasn't something to be challenged. So, for example, when we learned about criminal law, we were told to look for the mens rea and the actus rea to determine whether something was a murder or not. However, there wasn't much critical engagement with regards to whether we should define a certain act as criminal or not. And this is the side of law that really interests me, the side which challenges and which questions the established legal norms that we have because I think that when we accept law for what it is as simply something that's been created by the parties in power at the time, then we don't engage fully with our legal system and we don't question to what extent is it serving us correctly and to what extent is it really helping our society to be as productive and as healthy as possible. So that's really sort of why I decided to start the podcast in order to bring up some of these issues that now in my third year I've been given the opportunity to study through some really interesting modules such as criminology, sex gender law and rich law poor law. I'm really grateful to my lecturers for creating such interesting courses this year and I'm hoping that you'll enjoy listening to some quite thought-provoking aspects of the law and hopefully this will help to create a wider conversation as to our legal system and how we can create meaningful change that will have a positive impact on how law impacts our society. Before we get into the real meaty part of the podcast I'd like to just apologise if there's any sort of bad sound quality. I'm just recording this on my laptop because the burst radio station is closed at the moment due to COVID-19. And also I live on quite a busy main street in Bristol. So there's quite a lot of noise and building works. Um, I'm really sorry if that impacts the quality of this recording. For today's episode, I'm going to start off by talking about the fascinating idea of crime as a construct and then as it links in quite nicely with this I have two guests Zainab and Love from the Howard League for Penal Reform with a really interesting discussion about the Howard League and prisons during a time of coronavirus and prisons in general and how we can reform them and make them serve people better. Without further ado, on to the first section of the podcast. What does it mean to say that crime is a construct? Crime as a construct 
is the idea that crime is something that as a society we create. And so there's nothing natural about the idea of crime. I found this a really interesting topic to be introduced to because in jurisprudence, the study of the philosophy behind law, we really looked into this whole idea of law as something natural, that something innate from the order of the world or perhaps God-given, if you believe in a God. Whereas when we think of crime, it's really hard to think of crime as something that could be God-given or that could be a natural process of the world. Because maybe I'm just naively optimistic, but I like to think that most people are inherently good. And so if we conceptualise crime as a construct, it really allows us to acknowledge and recognise the role that our society plays in creating crime. In the sense that, as we currently live in a capitalist society, money is so overwhelmingly crucial for having a good quality of life. Whether you agree that it should be or not, it is ultimately true that if you don't have any money and you can't afford a home or you can't afford food or clothing, then your quality of life will ultimately be diminished. And even within smaller aspects, you know, if you don't have enough money to buy the latest Nike trainers, you may feel that your respect or your popularity will decrease. And it's due to this monetary aspect of society that a lot of crimes are committed. So to begin this discussion, I just want to establish what we mean by labelling theory. So labelling theory was developed by Howard Becker in his book, Outsiders, Studies in the Sociology of Deviance. Within Outsiders, Becker views crime as a product of attributions, which is a process that's selective on two different levels. Firstly, what behaviours we criminalise is a selective process. And secondly, our existing norms are selectively enforced. Therefore, for someone to become a deviant, or in other words, a criminal, this behaviour must violate an existing norm, and this norm must also be enforced. When we label a certain activity as deviant or criminal, it serves two functions. To provide a justification for us to condemn this behaviour and to take action against it as moral entrepreneurs, Becker says. And also it creates an identity for an outsider, which then causes secondary deviance. This is the idea that through labelling someone as a criminal, this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think that this is pretty clear in reoffending rates. If we take the UK as an example, 75% of ex-inmates reoffend within nine years of release, and 39.3% of these reoffend within the first 12 months after their release. When we label whether it's good or bad, we do impose a particular identity onto that person. For example, at school, I was always told that I was really good at writing and English. And that became this self-fulfilling prophecy that because I thought I was good at it, I put a lot more effort into my writing and my English work than I did in my maths or science. And that's how I've ended up doing an essay-based subject at university. 
I listened to a really interesting segment from the BBC Radio 2 programme Good Morning Sunday because I am a grandma who likes to listen to the radio in the morning. And on this show, they had a really lovely guy from a charity called Key for Life. Key for Life works with young offenders when they're in prison by matching them with mentors in the hope that through providing a positive influence, they will create a meaningful pathway for the young offender once they leave prison. So Liam said that he had been put into care as a child, he'd had issues with drug and alcohol abuse and negative friendship influences and started committing a pattern of behaviours that got him labelled as a young offender and sent to prison. It was really touching to me that when he said he was sent to prison, it was like he'd finally reached the destination that everyone had been telling him that he was heading towards for his entire life. This really highlights the power of the labels that we give to people. If you've been told, if you keep acting like this, you'll end up in prison, then it becomes almost reinforcement. And for someone like Liam, perhaps the only way that he felt like he could leave this negative cycle of so-called criminal actions of offending would be to reach the end of the road and go to prison. Through working with Key for Life and a mentor in prison, he's now managed to change his previous behaviour patterns and now works for Yo Valley through a placement that he got with the charity. And he also works as a mentor for Key for Life. This really shows how just because we label someone as a young offender or as a criminal or a prisoner, that identity is not a natural identity for that person. When we put such a negative label onto someone, we really reduce the possibility of them creating an identity beyond this, a more positive identity. Luckily for someone like Liam, he's been able to do this through the positive support of Key for Life. But there are thousands of other people stuck in the prison system or within gangs who commit unfavourable actions that find it really hard to escape this identity. Key for Life has some really heartwarming statistics on their website as they say that young offenders are four times more likely to be in employment and four times less likely to re-offend if they've been through the Key for Life programme. And also that for every £1 invested, Key for Life generates £17 in social value over over three years through the economic benefits, human capital gains and wellbeing improvements that their programme creates. To me, these statistics highlight how there is 100% a way out of offending and a way out of the criminal or deviant label. And they just illustrate how false this label is and how harmful it can be. Now, beyond simply the label of young offender or deviant, what we choose to label as a crime and who we choose to label as criminals is extremely selective. And this is based on issues of class and race. Michael and Adler say that the criminal law is the formal cause of crime. 
And this is evident in the priorities that our criminal law has, as it's far more focused on street crime rather than white collar and corporate crime. For example, benefit fraud is hugely villainized in the UK, whilst tax evasion is sort of pushed under the carpet as something that isn't really tackled or spoken about. £1.1 billion have been fraudulently claimed within the benefit system. However, HMRC estimates that the tax gap of the total amount of tax that has been avoided and uncollected is £34 billion a year. £1.9 billion in benefit fraud versus £34 billion in the tax gap is absolutely crazy. And yet we don't see the media villainizing tax avoiders because the media is owned by a wealthy elite who tax avoid themselves. It's far easier for these people, such as, you know, the Sun, the Mail, to villainize benefit scroungers rather than tax avoiders. Likewise, we're really quick to label street crime, such as muggings or stabbings, yet we don't criminalize accidents at work, so-called accidents, even when they can be easily avoided. Another example is how begging is a crime under the Vagrancy Act 1824, and yet the resources spent on policing begging and the subsequent court appearances cost the taxpayer well over 1,000 pounds per incident, when this money could be a lot better spent on supporting those who are forced into begging and helping them to get back onto their feet and establish a better supported lifestyle. When we talk about crime in the UK, the focus is always very heavily on what is sensationalised by the media and we don't look at the factors and the impact that society has in creating quote-unquote criminals or deviants. Often, due to the way that our society is structured with wealth and income inequality, crime can be seen as the only way out for people from certain social groups. Merton came up with a really interesting theory that there's two important elements of social and cultural structure. Firstly, that we have culturally defined goals, purposes and interests which provide a frame of aspirational reference. And secondly, we have institutional norms that define, regulate and control the acceptable modes of achieving these goals. In a capitalist society, as we live in in the UK, there is the culturally defined goal of accumulating wealth, which is therefore a frame of aspirational reference for probably most people in the UK. And this is perpetuated by the culture of wealth flexing that we see on sites such as Instagram, the Kardashians hiring their private island, or the influencers from Love Island. However, if you live on a council estate, if you have a family background of poverty, and you haven't been properly supported by the education system, then your only option of jobs within the institutional norm as an acceptable mode of achieving wealth 
will be a low paid insecure job on a zero hours contract that will never provide a means of achieving this aspirational wealth by pure hard work. And this is where the myth of the deserving poor really sets in as we kind of condemn the media. And when I say we, I mean as a society, but the media condemns certain groups of people as scroungers and as deserving of their poverty because they don't work hard enough. But the fact is, is that no matter how hard you work, in a role uh, in, say, a call centre or as a cleaner, your job will never provide the means of of accumulating the level of wealth that somebody such as a banker will achieve. And that's not due to the personal failings of such people, but it's due to the fact that as a society, our society is not structured to help everybody achieve their potential and through an unfair education system which will be the topic of a future podcast coming up through an unfair education system and through a lack of a genuinely working and high functioning welfare welfare state we condemn people to lives of crime by saying oh, this level of wealth is what you should be achieving, but we're not going to put any means for you to genuinely achieve such a level of wealth without having to resort to crime. Drugs and drug dealing and gangs, criminal activity, are often the only way for especially young people to achieve any means of wealth. You know, as a young person, well, I would like to say I'm still a young person, but when I was like 16, I had a Saturday job in the shop Jack Wills, quite a cool clothing shop where all the clothes cost, you know, upwards of 50 quid. And yet I was being paid six pounds an hour. There was never really any way, even working with this job, to be able to afford things that I wanted such as a new phone or nice clothes that sort of took up my whole salary and I was lucky enough to live at home with parents who didn't make me pay rent or pay for my own food so I can't imagine the pressure that some young people coming from a less supportive background where they do have to fend for themselves in terms of things like food or accommodation must be absolutely impossible to be able to afford the means, to have the means for something like the latest £1,000 iPhone or even just a really nice pair of trainers without having to resort to criminal activity. I think it's really damaging personally that we are so quick and the media is so quick to label people that are forced into crime this way as criminals or young offenders or deviants when actually we need to take a step back and look at the society that we've created and the way that we allow so many people to accumulate huge amounts of wealth without giving anything back to the state. If we look at youth services, they've suffered a 70% funding cut in less than a decade. 
And at the same, over the same period of time, knife crime offences have risen by over 70%. We need our government to prioritise crime prevention through creating a society that works for everyone and that offers equal opportunities for everyone, rather than prioritising the views of the wealthy 1%. This leads me on really nicely to the next section of the podcast, which is a discussion with Zainab and Love from the Howard League for Penal Reform Society at the University of Bristol. For those of you that don't know, the Howard League is a national charity working for less crime, safer communities and fewer people in prison. Zainab is a third year law student whose areas of legal interest revolve around social justice. She's the current president of the University of Bristol's division of the Howard League. Love is a second year law student. His areas of legal interest revolve around criminal, family and human rights law. He's the current vice president of the University of Bristol's Howard League Society. I really wanted to ask you guys, I've defined it a bit already in the podcast, but I thought it'd be, it would be great to hear from you what the key focus of the Howard League for penal reform is. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay, so uh, from my perspective anyway, uh, what I see the Howard League to be is a, a national charity that campaigns for less crime, safer communities and fewer pr- people in prison, which I'm sure you must have gone over already in your introduction. But uh, we recognise that the current penal system isn't working. Um, and from my personal view, uh, and this is how I, how I personally see the, the Howard League, is it's based on the view that the focus needs to be uh, preventative rather than uh, purely punitive. Um, so this means projects that prevent crime from its sources, uh, from working with the police to reduce arrests of children, to championing community projects that cut crime and turn lives around. Um, so within the university division, which is what Lova and I can uh, speak most broadly on, we do our best to raise awareness um, as it's hard to come into contact with relevant information regarding, regarding penal reform and projects unless you consciously set out to do so. Um, so we do this via documentary screenings, debates, talks, fundraising. We also, um, uh, pre-COVID, uh, did, uh, used to like to endeavour to go on um, uh, prison visits. So we, we cover a range, a range of activities just purely on our part to raise awareness and uh, raise funds. So if Lova wants to elaborate on that, he's completely free to do so. Yeah, I would just want to add also that for the big national Howard League, uh, where you've got the charity part, which is just to promote reform, you've also got the part that works on, on the ground where advocates trying to help people that are in prison and to help where there's been miscarriages of justice or when they should have been released, but they haven't. So you've got, it's two sides of it. So it's the big picture and then the nitty gritty case uh, path as well. That's great, thank you. I found it really interesting on the Howard League website. There's this lovely analogy saying that the prison system is like a river So the wider it gets, the faster it flows and the harder it becomes to swim against the tide. And I feel like to me that sort of really sums up the problem with our prison systems in that when people go to prison, and I talk about this a bit earlier in the podcast, it's kind of 
the end of the road and it's not presented as an opportunity for change and as a place where of you know self-improvement and the ability to come out the other side as a better person it's more presented as sort of the place where you're likely to get more involved with gangs or with more violence than perhaps before so absolutely i think and i think that's what um uh, the message of uh, tackling uh, crime from its source and having those preventative measures in place really hones on with that with that analogy. Um, and I think that's why it's so important to raise awareness uh, wherever you can, because like I said, unless the majority of society consciously set out to find out about these things, the penal system and its effects doesn't really touch the mainstream media unless it's in a negative context, which I think is also very harmful. I think that's something that we can continue to talk about as, as, we, as we progress. Completely, yeah. I mean, I think that brings us on, sorry to jump around from the question list, but I no, think not at all. really well to the idea of the misrepresentation of criminals and how we and the media over-represents and fear mongers about street crime, but not about white collar or corporate crime. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I can't stress yeah. that enough. I, and I think that ties in with the idea of the word criminal itself. But again, I think it's something we can, as we progress, I think it'd be really nice to get into that kind of conversation. Great. I also it's very interesting with the misrepresentation of criminals, because when we talk about, as we will talk, defining crime and if that's actually satisfactory. And if we think of the bigger picture, we've got international crime, we've got these big social harms that exist uh, that we don't, that people don't talk about and that the media never represents or very rarely actually talks about, which is actually the thing that affects the most people. While street crime is usually poverty, uh, poverty related or trying to like make sure that you survive the day, like theft or burglaring or selling a bit of something to just make the day ends meet. Completely, yeah, and I think for me that's particularly been shown today because I don't know if you've seen in the news, but Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, has died and he's obviously committed a large number of completely horrible crimes, but it's fascinating that the media chooses to focus in on somebody like him who commits these very vicious murders and yet completely fails to comment on the huge amount of so-called accidents in the workplace that could be easily avoided by stronger health and safety laws or by the other deaths that are caused that from when the government pushes people into poverty by not creating a welfare state that is more supportive. Absolutely, I think honing in on that example, I think it's so interesting how uh, this uh, story or this case is one of the only cases to have broken through the mainstream media and has quote-unquote gone viral, especially within England, uh, regarding someone within the, the prison system and the effects of COVID-19 on them. And it's, it's and, uh, instead of being heralded as a point of discussion on uh, COVID within the prison system, within the penal system, which I, um, instead, of, instead of me being brought awareness being brought to it uh, unconsciously I had to consciously seek it out but mm -hmm. in this case um, it's very sensationalist and 
it's interesting to see how the virus has affected someone in prison, but the only time we hear about it and the only time we then begin to start conversations about it is in regard to heinous murders and heinous crimes. And instead of being uh, educated on, on the effects of COVID within the penal system and how it's affecting prisoners, i.e. causing death, instead the conversation is being shifted to a murder, a murderer and the, the heinous crimes is committed. And even within that dimension, the victims aren't being aren't being brought just as in the slightest. Again, it's just being held as a sensation story that, that quote-unquote crime junkies come on Twitter just to talk about. And it's, it's horrible that we can't have meaningful discussions around the penal system unless some sense of sensationalism is involved with, within that dimension. I think that's so true, actually. That's such a valuable point. And that brings us on really nicely to talking about prison overcrowding and coronavirus and what you know the impact that coronavirus has had in prisons because the government is telling us all to stay you know two meters apart when we're in the shop or walking down the street but if you're in a prison such as Leeds prison that is 164 percent overcrowded it must be near impossible to follow such social distancing measures what are your yeah abs absolutely i th i think that it's interesting to see how society views uh, topical issues, especially in regards to how this pandemic has affected us all. It, it's very easy to co go onto the internet, turn on the news and see how this virus is affecting things like concerts, for example, large events, uh, Christmas, Eid, all these, these events that you usually ha have with friends or family or very social, but it doesn't really touch on issues like the penal system. And I, I think it's so telling of how we view crime and how we view prisoners and how we view uh, marginalized societies it's so incredibly overlooked and the impacts of this virus touch the penal system just as much as it touched the, the social dimension of society and it's i think it's really great that we have platforms like the howard league and even like this podcast to open up conversations on it because on a practical level the sheer amount of people within prison is irresponsible full stop covid or no covid but it also you you also have this other dimension within the covid covid system in that it affects prisoners mental health if affects the financial dimension of the penal system the implications of the pandemic are so far reaching that to even bracket it under uh overcrowding the prison system is is too small of a dimension to talk about completely that's so true do you have anything to add love uh, so it's also very interesting if you read because the only way I've ever been able to actually get information daily about the prison system and coronavirus has been through Twitter um, and legal Twitter and if you look there you can look at almost all prisoner, uh, prisons they've been in isolation since the start of Covid for almost 23 hours a day which is not acceptable the restrictions on your human rights goes so far reaching then that you you get no quality of life and if you want people to actually come out as a changed person when they leave prison that will never happen if they're stuck uh, in the small room without any form of interaction or yeah change Completely. i think it's so damaging and it's so harmful that as soon as we place this label of criminal onto an individual, it's as if they're almost not even human and they don't deserve to have their human rights respected and they don't deserve basic 
things such as cleanliness and outside space or you know the ability to leave their cell room for more than an hour a day and I guess you know for some people it can be quite challenging to recognize that somebody who commits a really nasty violent crime that they should be equally deserving of such freedoms but the reality is that most people in prison are there for poverty crimes and they're not there for a violent or sexual offence. So I think it's crazy that our prison system is so out of contact with the type of people that are actually placed into prisons. Now, and I also think that's very interesting because, um, as you know, I'm from Sweden and we have a very different approach to the criminal justice system and especially prisons uh, than in the UK. We see it to that you want to change the offenders, you want them to come out and be part of the society. We got a murderer released last day and it was celebrated that he could return to society. It's a part of you, you you make a mistake or you do a heinous crime, it's heinous, whatever you, if you murder someone, that's awful. But you've served your time. You're meant to be able to reintegrate into society and contribute to society. The whole thinking of the prison system here just to penalise is quite, I must say, unconstructive because well then they will just return to prison when their sentence ends because they'll commit another crime because there's been no help no forward thinking on how can we change this person's mentality for example how can we help them financially to come out of this and it's also if we look being in prison being restricted on your freedom is such a harsh punishment anyway so then saying that they shouldn't have be have the right to be clean or don't have the right to sleep in an okay comfortable bed or have some norms that make them feel human that if you dehumanize them they will never want to be accepted into back into society because the society has done nothing for them has not given them a second chance or anything mm, yeah thank you so much for your Swedish view on the prison system because I was reading in the BBC um, something really interesting about how there's a new young offenders unit being built in Kent, planned to be open in 2022, and it's meant to be England's first secure school. So it's trying to take this Scandinavian Swedish approach of moving away from being a secure unit towards providing security and creating a, an environment with therapy and with education and with a strong community um, sense that should hopefully help these young people to break the pattern of reoffending. And I think leading on from both of those points, I think it's so important to realise the weight that the lexical dimensions of crime can have because if, if we hold it on, on the word criminal here for example the extremely negative connotations and emotional responses that one word can evoke are heavy on both ends on one end it evokes themes of like fear disgust and hate and on the other end you also get the idea of negative self-perpetuation and so, yes, by definition, criminal refers to someone who has committed a crime. And if you take that at face value, yes, it, it's helpful to make a distinction between those who are in prison and those who aren't. Those who are in prison have committed a crime. By definition, they're criminals. Those who aren't 
are not. But if you di dive deep into the background of the word, it refers to someone who has broken the law. But is, I think you really need to question, is every law inherently good or upholds the best principles? And as society progresses, what we consider good or bad evolves with it, right? I think there are, there are certain themes that across society you can see are inherently bad. Theft. But then if you dive into that, the dimension of theft, you also can get fragments of poverty-related theft or more white-collar theft, which both carry different weights. But to break a quote-unquote trivial law garners the same label as to break a quote-unquote serious one. But on face value, the layman would distinguish between the crimes, but yet not distinguish between the term. The label and the connotations of criminal remain the same for someone who has stolen loaf of bread to feel their family, but also laundered money from a corporation into a private bank account. They both are criminals, yet they are both quote-unquote criminals for different reasons. And, uh, and the backgrounds of why they committed a crime are very different. The othering and the permanence of the word criminal evokes negative emotions and responses. And when, you, when you're aiming to rehabilitate, rehabilitate people, just like the Swedish prison system aims to do, and I think is doing it successfully, uh, you have, and you'll have lower reoffending rates as an end goal, to have a term like criminal and to carry with it such negative connotations, you kind of get into the idea of labeling theory where someone will attach the label of criminal and all the connotations behind it, such as delinquency, uh, a negative self-image, uh, being shamed and sanctioned by society for an act that sometimes is very much out of your control. To have a lexical dimension behind crime as the one that we do in the UK, I think is very dangerous mm. because you don't, yeah. you then don't get to the root of crime and you don't get to the source of why these things happen and then you can't fix them. And then you just get into a cycle where people enter the penal system and come out of it and then enter it again. Completely. I think that's just so true. And I think that using the label criminal sort of almost acts as like a plaster that we put over the problems that our society has. And we say, oh, you know, well, they're a criminal. That's why they did X, Y, Z. That's why they're a bad person. And we don't actually take a step back and think, well, hold on, does our society create positive conditions for somebody to thrive and to lead, you know, a meaningful life beyond sort of, you know, if you're born into a council estate, if you're born into a family, perhaps with low education rates, it will be so much harder to progress onto university or to avoid deviant paths. And yet we try and escape confronting this fact by just putting the label criminal onto certain groups of people. Yeah, I must say, I also find the labels very interesting because when we say, we talk about prisons, when we talk, uh, well, it would go back to what we label in Sweden or in Scandinavia, we call a, a correctional treatment or criminal treatment so you've got the aspect that is actually there to treat it's not so it doesn't grab the same negative connotation which goes the same for using criminal or all of those that we put words with the negative instead of putting the words treatment or something like that in there it's quite it's an interesting viewpoint that you want the negative with it always yeah, I really like that. I think 
that would be a really positive step in the UK to move towards that sort of lexical way of defining prison or you know rehabilitation um, and I read an interesting report when I was doing a bit of research this discussion that said that um, having a parent who's been labeled and convicted as a criminal means that their child is then more likely to offend and I think to me that's so upsetting to see how damaging the label criminal is not just on those who offend but also on then their children so it's kind of creating this cumulative disadvantage that is almost impossible to escape yeah, absolutely that, i think gone there no, absolutely gone yeah no i think that's quite interesting with crim with the criminal justice system and prisons as a whole as well because who you don't talk about who gets um like who gets in trouble gets problems except the tr uh, the criminal but if we put for example the mother or a father in prison then the child will grow up with only one parent they will not maybe have the same monetary compensations that they would so they might not be able to go to university because of that because they've got one parent that can't afford to help them so it's quite interesting to look at having huge having a prison sentence for 34 years or uh, similar for, for murder or lifetime even that then that will affect the family and it affects so many more people than just the prisoner or the criminal. Definitely. Amanda, I think that relates on how you how you refer to crime as almost like a plaster. I think mm -hmm. that that it ties into the idea of crime being a social concept and how you have one term just to cover the whole dimension of it. Whereas I think having that facilitates the kind of ignorance of the external factors of what can contribute to crime or it allows for privileged individuals to continue to perpetuate systems that contribute to crime as a whole. Uh, poverty, the welfare state, wealth distribution, I think that all of these are fragments of a whole and by having a broad term like the word crime and I think that relates also to what Lova was saying about having uh, the term treatment attached to it it's not attached to it here and so by having one word that has such harsh connotations and that allows for the ignorance of a whole set of fragments that contribute to a whole I think that's why the British standard of crime is so stagnant it, it's just it's a history of ignorance and a lack of commitment to finding the root cause and instead laying it instead over with punitive measures mm, uh, yeah I think that's a really good development on that point because I don't know if you're doing the criminology unit this year but one of the first things that our lecturer said was that crime is a social concept and that ultimately, you know, you can't look at it, you can't disagree with that fact from a criminological point of view. And when I tried to discuss this with my flatmates, there was some sort of reluctance to accept this idea that crime is not natural and it doesn't have to be inherent to our society, at least in the way that we punish it and the way that we treat it, especially in the UK. So I think there's definitely quite a lot of work to be done towards recognising that just because we view crime as a particular way, especially in 
a capitalist society, that doesn't mean that that's the only way of conceiving crime and the only way of understanding it. Can I ask you, Miranda, how, because all three of us are law students, I think we all have very different experiences within law school, but can I ask how your studies, especially now that you do criminology, how that has changed your perception of crime over time? So I'm sure you went into university maybe different than how you're coming out of it. Can I ask how, how you, you, your perception of crime has developed over time? Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Oh, it's nice to be asked the question. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I went, I probably went into law school quite naive and I thought, you know, I really want to be a barrister. I'm really interested in law. But when we studied criminal law in first year, I didn't find myself challenging what we were taught as much as now I would expect myself to. So I think, you know, if I had a conversation with myself from two years ago, I would be kind of surprised. I'd be like, you know, ask yourself and ask your lecturers, why is it that we view X act as criminal and why do we conceive of it as something that requires punishment and why do we only look at crime through the lens of the very worst crimes because there was quite a strong focus on you know murder homicide sexual offenses but actually in the reality of people who commit crimes and people who are put into prisons sexual offenders and violent offenders make up a small proportion of prisoners and so I think now definitely my view through studying units like rich law, poor law and criminology, I've definitely developed a more nuanced understanding of our criminal justice system and why it is that we define certain things as criminal. Because I think through rich law, poor law, that's definitely shown me the complicity of the state in creating the label of the underclass or the undeserving poor. This idea that people who are unemployed or who commit crime or who are impoverished are there because they're lazy, they're selfish, they're not motivated. Whereas that's a total lie. And the fact is that the state is not creating a society in which people from a disadvantaged start can then catch up and have access to the same opportunities as somebody you know like myself who was born into a nice middle class family from bath and i think that's probably the biggest way that my view on crime has changed through the course so as quite a good link from that how do you both feel about this idea of poverty crimes and prison because it is clear that the majority, especially of women, I think it's something like 75 to 80% of women are in prison for poverty crimes. So should prison ever be the suitable space for people who are there because you know they haven't been able to pay their council tax fine or because they've committed benefit fraud? What do you think about prison for these people? I think Firstly, I don't think it's the right measure to take to send someone to prison. But also, I think it's quite interesting the focus that media and uh, the government put on poverty crimes as 
saying that, for example, benefit fraud is a very serious and awful crime that a lot of people commit while in all seriousness, we talked about this in Crime, Justice and Society last week, uh, that it's actually not that many people um, that uh, commit that commit benefit fraud, for example, while we have a lot more people committing big uh, normal fraud cases like tax fraud when they're rich. And so I think it's firstly very wrong to send them to prison and also the focus, I don't even understand why we put it on it, except to maybe keep a status quo for uh, and let equalities continue to grow. Mm, I, I agree. I agree. I think also that I think, and this is what the Howard Leakley stands for, is if you don't help these people at the, at the source of their problems, then I, I don't think, I don't see why people see it as a surprise that things like this happen. People out of sheer necessity have to miss out on like benefits and um, like payments or, or administrative things that they have to keep up with. If you don't help these people or fight or endeavour to help them and instead impose these administrative um, duties upon them in, in, and you know that they can't adhere to them, then why do we as a society insist on villainizing them and insist on imposing punitive measures when it's, if you look at it from very much face value, they're, they're helpless. It's very much a case of helplessness for the majority of these people. And um, in my studies of ritual or poor law, which I know I think you'd take as well, Miranda, that yeah. we were discussing that I think society plays a massive part on how uh, people are viewed or how quote unquote criminals are viewed, especially uh, the crimes that they commit. And if you look at back at wartime and the welfare state, for example, there was a sense of togetherness and reliance on the welfare state wasn't as badly viewed as it is now. And if you take the pandemic, for example, where it's almost, it's it's a no-brainer that people have to have to rely on the welfare state because jobs are being cut, cuts are being cut to payments. Like it's cuts are happening everywhere. It's no surprise that people right now are are relying on the welfare state. But because that sense of togetherness isn't here anymore, in that people are being fragmented on their views on the virus. Some people don't think it exists. Some people think it's a conspiracy. Some people think it's it's a way for us to conform to the government. No matter what your views on it are. The, the sheer fact that people have to band together as time is one that's a no-brainer. But because of a fragmentation of views, the idea of coming together to help one another just doesn't exist. And so you, you, you kind of proceed with the idea that people who are missing out on administrative uh, obligations are ultimately bad because it's their own fault. It's their own fault that they're, that they're losing their jobs because they're they're, they're, they're quote-unquote lazy or they don't want to work or but you're not realizing that we're in a situation where everyone is pretty much in the same position but if you deep dig further into it we're not I am privileged in that I was born into a middle-class family live in a suburban area and I don't need to result to benefits to to fund uh, my current lifestyle even amidst this pandemic but there are people who who aren't in my position and who do need to result to welfare state but because of the fragmentation of views, it's hard to see that point of view. And I think that's where the problem really lies in that as societies change and develop and as large life events like this are happening and large historical mo moments like this are happening, as does the change in the perception on crime. Does that make sense? 
It really does. And I think coronavirus has provided the perfect example in a sense of showing how when everyone's affected by the same thing, you know, Madonna called it the great equalizer, but it's clearly not because even if we're all affected by one issue, we will all be affected to different extents because there will be, you know, different households with family members who have lost both their jobs or one of their jobs or who are able to do all their work from home and haven't been affected that much at all. So I think it's been fascinating to see over recent months how the dialogue has changed from the idea of coronavirus as the great equaliser to actually coronavirus being something that exposes pre-existing inequalities and the extent that these go to in our society. Um, so on to our final question. Um, oh no, there's two more. So what would you say is the most suitable alternative to prison? Um, if there is one. So yeah, so I've always found restorative justice quite interesting because it's been used in, well, uh, it was used in Rwanda after the genocide and uh, it's quite an interesting concept where you sit there with the victim and the, def uh, and the person committing the crime or the social harm sits down and asks for forgiveness and you have the confrontation where the victim actually gets what I think most victims really want. They're like the, seeing that they understand that they did wrong and uh, understand, get the understanding that this was not, nothing okay and getting like, yeah. It restore. I think it restores balance better as well. Also, because it's unsuitable to have a prison population as big as the UK has, when it's if we look, it's got the second biggest prison population in the world after the US, but it's not one of the biggest countries. It's sixty-six million or whatever. So, is yeah. No, I think restorative justice is something that should be brought into the UK system. Also, this really good new charity uh, that started to focus on restorative justice that's called Why Me. Um, it's really worth to look up. Oh, great. Thank you. I'll make sure I give that a quick search after this. Um, lovely. And then the final question was one that sort of I guess it's because I know that myself and both Zainab have been studying sex gender law. Um, and I thought it'd be interesting to look at the gender dimension of prisons and whether it's useful or not that our prisons are gender segregated. What are your thoughts on this? I think that there are, there are definitely quote unquote pros and cons to a gender segregated um, prison system. Uh, I think on, on the face of it, women are a marginalized group of people in comparison to men. So the threat of rape and violence and abuse is heightened against them in relation to men within a prison system. So on that dimension alone, I think it's a quote unquote good thing that prisons are segregated. But within that, violence happens 
within the prison system to both genders. So having it segregated does not take that away. And I think if you continue within to, to, to research within it, how, how does this discourse help non-binary people or trans people or people who exploit their gender identity within the prison system? Where does that leave them? And also, uh, in preparing for this podcast, I did a bit more research into this because, to be honest, like, like, like you said, Miranda, in, uh, a little earlier on, when I entered university, I had a very different worldview on crime than I, I do now. I was very stagnant and I, I read things off face value, but now I've questioned things a lot more. And in preparing for this, I did start to question the system a little more and why is it co-ed um, and what are the historical reasons behind it. And upon doing some research, especially in regards to the US, I read around the segregation of the prison system having a multitude of purposes. But interesting, interestingly, one reason for separation uh, was the, dis the disciplinary measures uh, that men and women were subjected to. So when the prison system was segregated, women would be subjected to such uh, quote-unquote punishments as decorous walking and men would not, would, would, would not be. And I think the sentiments behind this persist in that heteronormativity is a product of a segregated system. Some women's prison offers uh, cosmetology courses, uh, which I think is a very good thing in that you're continuing education within bars and, and that's offered alongside a multitude of courses such as uh, English literature and um, uh, uh, maths and such courses like that. But if you re research into it, this course is provided in hardly any men's prisons. And what's the reason for that? I think if you, if you se separate on a binary, you reinforce negative binary stereotypes. But then I think w what I do need to research one is what the alternative to that would be. I found that a bit hard to pinpoint an answer to. Completely. I think that's maybe part of the issue that at least in the current system of how we conceptualize, conceptualize gender and gender identity, maybe there isn't an appropriate alternative, but perhaps it's something that hopefully as we progress more with our views towards these ideas of gender and sexuality, then that's something that might be more suitable in the future. Um, I'm quite conscious of time because I think my zoom limit might be up soon so i just want to say thank you so so much for being my first guest and also if there's anything if there's any upcoming events or socials for the howard league that you would like to advertise now's your time yeah we, we want to thank you for having us it's honestly oh. the biggest <laughs> honor to be invited onto a, onto a podcast <laughs> uh, it's definitely my my first time um uh, we have a multitude of events coming up that are currently being planned, but I will let Lova elaborate a bit more on them because uh, he's championed quite quite a few of them. Okay, so we actually have on Monday, which will be after, sadly, before this episode is released, but then there will be a movie night uh, of the 13th and a discussion about it, but there will also be in the coming weeks Zoom, Zoom debates and we're going to have talks from practitioners in the criminal justice system on issues of uh, uh, racism, uh, LGBT, LGBTQ rights and uh, uh, how, how the prison system caters for people with disabilities. Um, yeah, no, and then further discussions and just getting people involved otherwise.
That sounds so great. And I'll um, put something on my Instagram about the social on Monday, because I know I definitely want to attend that. And hopefully some of my followers will be interested. But yeah, thank you once again so much. I've really enjoyed the discussion that we've had today. And I'm just really grateful that you both clearly did a lot of research and were as excited about this discussion as I was. So thank you. Absolutely. I think it's so important to have forums like this to bring up conversations that people wouldn't normally come into awareness of. So thank you so much for having us. Thank you once again to Zainab and Love from the Howard League for Penal Reform at the University of Bristol for speaking to me. I hope you all found that discussion as engaging and as interesting as I found it was to have. This now brings us to the end of the podcast. But before I go, I'd just like to mention a few final things. Um, Firstly, if you haven't already, then please do follow at Unseen Law on Instagram as here you can see a few more updates and also I'll be posting some links to things that I've talked about today so I'll post a link to the Key for Life Instagram and you can have a look at the great work that they do on there. I'll also try to share a link to the Howard League for Penal Reform so hopefully if you're at Bristol University or even at a different university or not at university then you can have a look at their website and perhaps support them in their great work. And one really nice way to do that this Christmas, as we are in the run up to Christmas, the Howard League is running a a Christmas fundraiser called Pact Operation Elf 2020, where you can buy a book token for the value of £10 that will then be sent in a Christmas card to the child of a prisoner. I think that this seems like a really great way that we can take an active step in breaking the labelling effect of words such as criminal or prisoner. Because, you know, at the end of the day, whether their parent has committed a crime as currently conceived or not, that shouldn't have an impact on the life of the child, but it ultimately does. I will definitely be buying a couple of book tokens, maybe to give as presents as Secret Santa or to my family this year, and I hope that you'll consider it too. Thank you so much for listening. Please keep an ear out for the next episode, which will be on the topic of education, coronavirus and the state-private school divide. Thank you.